0: We thought that before Andrew comes and preaches, it would be great for you to just get to know him a little bit. You know, we're going to ask him some questions, a bit of an interview. However, there is a twist. If he gets the question wrong, or there's a delay, we're going to splat an egg on his head. Andrew.
1: Yes, are you Rebecca.
0: ready? I think so. Right. Three, two, one. How old are you? Forty. <laughs> What's your favourite colour? Blue. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Scrambled egg or fried? Scrambled. What are you scared of? Spiders. <laughs> that is outrageous! What have you? Pos- what evidence have you possibly got that I'm not afraid I of spiders? I thought there was a delay, sorry. I thought there was a delay. <laughs> I thought there was a delay. You thought there was a delay? Hang on, there was no a, a delay. I heard hesitant. a delay, I heard a delay. Keep going. What colours are used in the Mongolian national flag? I have no idea and you know it. Oh. Look <laughs> at <laughs> this! Is horrible. Oh my word! Oh what year were you born? 1978 What's your favourite parable of Jesus? The lost son What's your job? Pastor What's my middle name? Joy It <laughs> might have been! Am <laughs> I supposed to know your <laughs> <middle> name? <laughs> what is your middle name? Elizabeth, everyone knows my that My head is turning into a cake! <laughs> everyone knows Elizabeth <laughs> Stephen Dawson or Ben Rowe? Stephen Dawson <laughs> And describe Jesus in three words Son of God. Very good. There we go. <laughs> oh my. No way. No. I did it on purpose. <laughs> that is so gross. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Short hair. That's why. I just recommend it. It's really good. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Mark chapter 4? Mark chapter 4. I want to speak to you this week. I've got the morning sessions with you, which I'm very excited about, and I want to speak to you this week about the fear of God. About the fear of God. And when I was at school, I found the idea of fearing God a very strange Christian idea. I, I'd heard the language, I didn't know what it meant, and I found it a very weird idea that you were supposed to fear God. I, actually, one of the hardest teachings in all of Christianity. I, it didn't make sense to me because God, as I'd heard, God was good and loving, and kind, and nice, and so you don't want to fear someone who's good, because that would be like fearing a hamster, or a kitten, or I don't know why you would do that. It didn't, God, as I understood him, I'm believing you for good things. We didn't have that song, but that idea, God is good, why would I be scared of him? Meanwhile, fear was something that you experienced in like shrieking terror, when something really awful might be about to happen. Fear was that uncontrolled quivering that I remember first experiencing intensely when I was watching a movie that I'm not recommending to you called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. It's old now, but it's basically about a nanny who goes, has anyone seen it? It's about a nanny who goes psycho, and I tell you what, when you're 14 and you watch that movie, it is well, it was at the time truly terrifying, and I watched it in my boarding house at school, and there were 18-year-old lads at the time who I thought were 900 years old, just screaming for fright, and I thought, that's what fear is, and I couldn't understand why fear and God went together. God is nothing but good, and he's only ever going to do nice things. Fear is the experience you have when you're sitting there on a chair waiting for someone to crack an egg over your head. Why would you fear God? I, didn't, I couldn't square the circle. And as I got older, I began to learn that the fear of God is something that's not just necessary but actually really good for us. But then I ran into a new problem, which is that I began to think that I was supposed to fear God as in the Creator. The thunder, lightning, God. But Jesus was on my side. That's how I began to conceptualize it. I began to think I'm supposed to be scared of God, the big, scary Old Testament God, but Jesus, the New Testament God, is nice. And he died for me. And at its worst, what happened in my head was Jesus, the nice bit of God, dies to protect me from the nasty bit of God. Now that's a terrible way of thinking about God, that's like, that's evil, that's heresy would be the old word for it, it's awful theology, but some of you may be able to relate to what I thought, and you may think that's kind of how I sometimes see the relationship between fear, Jesus, and God. So what I want to do this week is to look at several stories in which people come to fear God by fearing Jesus. Several stories in the Bible where people fear Jesus and find themselves actually being saved or rescued or given strength and faith ultimately by being frightened to some degree of who Jesus is. And the first of those stories is going to be in Mark chapter 4. We're going to start with a story about Jesus being king of the wind or king of the hurricane or king of the storm, but I want to call it king of the wind. Can you say with me king of the wind? king of the wind. Great. That's that's what we're talking about this morning, and I want to show you this. You'll probably know the story if you've been around church any length of time. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Movies in the end are not actually that scary. I know they frighten us and we enjoy, some of you like being scared by films, I, I kind of do, um, but movies in the end are not that scary because they have the capacity to frighten us for a short while, but we know ultimately that if it gets too much for us, we just turn it off, right? There's a button, we press the red button, ding, and then it, all the fear disappears, uh, or you just decide to pause it. And you go next door and get some nachos or whatever and then come back. And you know that you're in control of the thing that's making you frightened. So although a movie to a degree has the capacity to give you a little, a little scare, it's not actually frightening. Because you're allowing yourself to be tricked into thinking it's really happening. But you know very well it's not and you can just turn it off at the drop of a hat if you want to. I've shrieked my... In fact, I, I'm, very, I'm a very loud movie watcher. I cry like a baby when I'm watching uh, movies which are sad. I scream when I'm watching something that's frightening. I'm very... Ah! I'm quite an expressive sort of person, and you may be too, but even when I'm at my most... Ah! I know that I'm in control. Because it's... And I have the same about roller coasters, actually. I love... I like adrenaline, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, but on my honeymoon I went bungee jumping off what was at the time the largest bungee jump in the world, I just love that kind of thing, I love shrieking in fear, but the thing is in the end I know that the fear is being manufactured for my entertainment, and I know I'm in control of it, so it's not ultimately that scary, there is one exception, which is a friend of mine went skydiving in Arizona, and he was, um, again, adrenaline junkie, a bit like me, and he got to the edge of the plane, you know, and they're doing their sort of countdown and the plane doors open and you're looking down just 10, whatever, 10,000 feet or whatever it is down to the ground and that's pretty frightening and I've done that with bungee jumping as well and you're attached to this guy behind you who has a parachute and you don't and the guy's just going 3,000, 2,000, whatever it is, 2,000, 1,000 and then just as about to jump the, another guy on the plane shouts to the instructor, hey, hey, Dave, your carabiner's undone, which is that thing that connects you to the guy, and he just goes, what? And then leaps out the plane at the same time. It's obviously all part of the fun, but for the first two seconds of that fall, my friend Dave thinks, I'm going to die. Like, this is, he hasn't connected me to it, I'm just going to fall to my doom. And there is a sense of, like, even there, there's a sense of fear being part of entertainment that what I'm offering you in skydiving or bungee jumping or watching a movie or a theme park is I'm trying to scare you, but not too much. Because re- you're not really out of control here. I am making you feel like it because I want you to experience a rush. But that's not what true fear is actually like. You know what's really scary? Wind. Wind is really scary. The two times in my life when I have genuinely thought, I think I'm gonna, I could die here. Have been because of the wind. Right? Not in a manufactured fear, not in an entertainment fear, but in a genuine terror, I think I could not survive this, have been because of the wind. The first one, I was about the age of many of you, I was about 15, and I was on a boat in the North Sea, and we sailed across to Denmark, and then we came back. And as we were coming back, a storm whipped up, and storms, you know, you know, boats do this, and then boats start doing that, and then you realize, hang on, this boat is kind of seems out of control. It is keeling so hard that we as kids run up to the top deck of the ship and start running up and down the corridors because as you run and play hide and seek, as you run, you would be, literally the boat would keel beneath you and the ground would disappear underneath you and you'd like, you'd you'd make a step and then you'd land over here because the boat was keeling so much. And then we decided to go out onto the top floor of the boat, outside the ship, and crawl. My dad was holding onto my little brother's ankles, crawling up the side of the outside of the ship, until we got to the very top deck, where we stood and witnessed the storm in the dark, uh, behind a perspex screen. And it was like water cannons were just blasting the, fr- the perspex screen in front of us. It was terrifying. It was exhilarating. It was incredibly exciting, but genuinely awe-inspiring and scary as well. And we discovered the next morning that the boat actually hadn't sailed anywhere for 17 hours. That the cap- we were literally a whole day late arriving back to Britain because the captain had said, we are, we are not going to make it if we don't drop the anchor right now and just sit here until this storm subsides. And it took 17 hours. We later discovered that there had been some oil rigs in the North Sea that had been ripped off their moorings and were just floating about in the North Sea because of the strength of the wind. That's pretty scary. You think, am I gonna, am I gonna make it through this? So that's one, that one of my two genuinely terrifying stories. The other one was also because of the wind, but this time I wasn't at sea, I was in a plane, which some might think is even worse, but we were on honeymoon flying into New Zealand, and in the part of New Zealand we were in, there's a long, thin lake, and on both sides of it are ranges of mountains. And so it's like flying into a giant wind tunnel, And as you're doing it, the plane is suddenly just dropping. And you think you've steadied and it drops again. And you know, sometimes planes are a little bit... If you've been on a plane, it's a little bumpy sometimes. But mostly, English people are kind of, this will be fine, it's all right, don't worry, don't chick children, it's fine. But there comes a moment when people start screaming. And when you're on a plane and people start screaming, it's terrifying. Because you realize, I am not the only one here who's worried. And you would just, people would start screaming, and then the next thing, if you've ever had this, is that people don't just start screaming, they start praying. Because people think they're going to die. It's fascinating. And so you're coming in, I think, I've, I've been married two days, and we or ten days or whatever it is, and I'm going to die, this is it, right? And you're coming in, and everyone goes, ah, 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 and then you can hear people go, mother of God, forgive me, and all of this. I mean, obviously, it's quite funny with hindsight, because of course, the next thing that happens is you land, everybody claps and cheers with relief. And then you all get in the queue for passport control. And you're all standing there, and all these people are going, Mother of God, I'm so sorry I slept with that woman. And you're all just standing there, all right? It's just so surreal because everyone's going to get their bags and now going to go off and have a regular holiday. But it's truly terrifying, the wind. But the problem with the wind, you see, is that you, are, you know you are at the mercy of something that is way too big and powerful for you to control. And that means you don't have a red button. You don't have the carabiner or the bungee or the thing that stops you from actually risking your life, you say, I am at the mercy here of a primal, powerful, terrifying force that is far larger and stronger than I am, and I have no idea if I'm going to make it. And if you've seen footage of what happens when hurricanes hit, you'll see they, I've, Again, I've been in one of those as well, I just wasn't scared because I was asleep at the time, but woke up the next morning and the whole of southern England had just been trashed by a hurricane and there were just trees just all over. No one in my village could get out for two or three days. And you see the power of this thing and it terrifies you because you know you are not in control of this thing. And that's even true in our modern world in which we have weather forecasts and flight instruments. Imagine how scary it is in an ancient society where you are on a ship I say a ship, I mean a boat, a piece of wood with a sail and a couple of oars and you are being tossed around like a little rag doll in the middle of this storm, you think you're going to die and you have no control whatsoever over this thing and that is exactly where the disciples are in this story. They are at the mercy of a kind of power that you and I glimpse very occasionally and when we do, it frightens us to our boots. That's where the disciples are as what the writer describes as a great windstorm arose. So the waves are crashing over the sides and the water is filling the boats and they think they're going to die. And this is about as stomach pounding and intense as fear ever gets. I am being face to face with my own death and I'm screaming. Teacher, we're dying here. Wake up, wake up. This is a... No, That's the way you react, right? And that's the way the disciples react in this boat. And meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. That's not what you want Jesus to be doing if he's in a boat with you. You want Jesus to be standing there reassuring everybody, like the stewards on that flight, it's all going to be all right. Don't worry, we're running into some turbulence. Everything will be fine. Would you like a ginger ale? or something? You want that to, have that, that to be the role that Jesus is playing in the story. And Jesus is asleep. He's tired. He's been healing people and teaching people all day. And so verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? We are dying here. Now, in a sense, the answer to that question is obvious for anyone who knows Jesus. Of course he cares, right? We know that to, in, to some degree. We're going to see there's another layer to it in a moment. But we know that Jesus does care. And of course, as soon as he is woken up, he stands up and rebukes the wind and everything goes calm. There's something very breezy about the whole thing. He just wakes up and says, shh. And the sea and the wind ultimately that are able to do pretty much anything they want except defy the orders of their creator goes flat as a mill pond from turbulent storm, tossing them around, shrieking and screaming, waves that would knock oil rigs off their moorings, if you will, the waves instantly subside, and the wind instantly goes silent to the point you could hear a pin drop, and Jesus goes back to bed. And there is something about the utter authority Jesus has that is quite scary in that moment, but it's one that in some ways I've experienced myself, in contrast to my children, when they get scared. Because you'll not. If you, I have three children, and little children get frightened by things that don't frighten you at all. So I was woken up a couple of years ago by my son who was wailing in his room. Dad, Dad! Somebody help me! Somebody help me! Of course, you run in thinking there must be a lion in this room, and of course, and you say, "What is it, Zeke?" And he says, "There's an ant on my clock." You say, what do you mean? This? And you look, and he has a little grow clock, one of those sunshine clocks, your little brothers and sisters might have them, that kind of tell you whether it's nighttime or daytime. you know, when the children are little and learning the time. And there's a little ant just walking across it. And it's terrifying him, because he's a, like, to him it's a, little, it's a mini beast, it's a little monster. He doesn't know what to do about it, he doesn't know how to get rid of it. And of course what happens is because the light is kind of glowing, it's casting a shadow of this little monster onto the ceiling. And it's terrifying. If you're that age, he's really scared. Now, I'm half asleep. So he's effectively shouting. I'm I'm in my bed. He's in his room. And he's shouting effectively, Dad, Dad, don't you care that we are perishing? And I'm walking into his room and going, of course I care. But, of course, I look at this clock. I'm still half asleep myself. And I just go, oh. And just flick the thing. And off it goes. And there's instantly a calm. And Zeke goes, oh, thank you, Dad. Thanks, Dad. And then goes back to sleep. I'm half asleep. All I have to do is just walk in, flick, back to bed. I am not for a moment troubled by this mini beast or this monster that's terrifying him. I know something he doesn't. I'm in charge of that thing, right? That thing's not going to be a match for me flicking it. So I just go back to bed. And there's something of that in this story, that as Jesus awakes, he kind of walks out onto the rest of the bed, half asleep. Oh, what's your problem, God? And they say, don't you care that we're perishing? He goes, oh, that. Oh. What kind of power do you have to have to be able to flick the wind, flick the storm, as if you're getting rid of a tiny little ant on a clock? What does it say about a person? What would you feel if you encountered a person who had that sort of authority over the most primal, surging, terrifying power that earth has to throw at you? So in a sense, this story is just a Obvious story about the might of Jesus and the fear of the disciples, right? But in a sense, there is another level to this story that's going on that is, makes the whole thing a bit of a, a kind of troubling irony, if you like, right? There is another level to the story, which is the disciples are saying to Jesus, wake up. Why are you asleep? We are in trouble here. Now, Jesus wakes up instantly and deals with business and goes back to bed or whatever, But the terrible irony of it is that in a few chapters time, the exact opposite is going to happen, which is that Jesus is going to be at risk of his life, and the disciples are all going to be asleep. And he's going to say to them, don't you care? Couldn't you stay awake with me just for an hour? And they've all fallen asleep. In the sense, this story exposes the difference, not just between the power of Jesus and the power of the disciples, but between the extent to which Jesus cares and the extent to which the disciples actually care. A few chapters time, he will wake time and time again, wake them up and they will doze off. But right here, when Jesus is asked to awake and calm the sea, he does. The story shows you the contrast between the two and it actually... It shows you a contrast in another way as well. If I can take you back to one other scripture, we're going to put it on the screen. It's in Isaiah chapter 51. So this is written 700 years before the story of Jesus and the storm. But this is what the prophet Isaiah had said about God. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who pierced the dragon? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. It's a reference back 700 years to a story in which the prophet is saying, Lord God, would you wake up? Because you, as Israel's God, you are the God who can instantly speak and the water dries up and is no longer a threat to your people. Please wake up and rescue us. And here we are 700 years later, and Jesus is literally being asked to wake up and calm the sea. And it is a way of saying, this Jesus is not simply able to work a miracle here and quiet the storm. This Jesus is Israel's God from 700 years ago in human form. And when he speaks, you need to shut up and listen. He's not just waking up a storm to comfort the disciples, waking up to calm a storm and comfort the disciples. He is waking up to demonstrate that he is Israel's God and that he has sovereignty over the wind itself. And that is why the disciples asked that open mouthed question at the end, who then is this that even the wind and the waves or the sea obey him? the punchline of the story to me comes at the very end. I don't know if you noticed it. The extraordinary thing that happens comes at the very end, right? I don't know if you you noticed that the disciples move from being afraid of the wind to being afraid of the king of the wind. That's what happens at the end, right? Verses 39 to 41. And he awoke... And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Right? That's the word he uses of their fear. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you see the contrast here? They are afraid of the wind. But when Jesus silences the wind, they become terrified of Jesus, right? The word they use of the fear of the wind is afraid, but then it uses this much stronger set of words saying, filled with a great fear. It's like they were scared of the wind, but they are terrified of the king of the wind. The one who is able to silence the wind with a word is far scarier than the wind itself. There are all manner of things that you may be afraid of. And many of those fears may well be legitimate. They may well be because the thing you're scared of actually has the power, to some degree, to do you harm. But there is nothing as scary as the one who can make all other fears disappear. Because if you have the kind of voice that with the word, shh, can silence a hurricane, you are much more frightening than the hurricane itself. They move from being afraid to being terrified. And it's like in that moment, although the wind and the waves are frightening, they are nowhere near as frightening as the one who can silence the wind and the waves with a word. It's as if they just move in that moment in a a kind of almost horrified awe. You are greater, Jesus, you are greater than it all. They're terrified they realize that the scariest thing in their world is not a patch on the frighteningness of the one who made it and can silence it and save you from it. And that dynamic is actually beautifully reflected in a lot of different kinds of fiction or movies. That there is something delightful about fear of the good guy who is stronger than the bad guy. It's a, it is fear, right? The fear of Jesus is fear. fear is a good word to use, but it's a fear mixed with delight. It's a fear mixed with joy that this one you are scared of, though he's far more powerful than the thing you used to be scared of, you're actually scared in a good way. You're scared in a liberating, delightful way because he is for you in a way that the other thing was against you. So, let me give you some examples. When you are, you've seen Harry Potter, if you've seen Harry Potter, I, f- I find there is something in the scene when Dumbledore and Voldemort have that wand battle at the end of the fifth movie, there is something at the end of that scene that makes you more scared of Dumbledore than you are of Voldemort, because, because Voldemort's scared of Dumbledore, right, and you know, that, you know through the story, you go, that's the one wizard that Voldemort is frightened of, and as you watch that scene unfold, you think, man... I am frightened of Voldemort, he's a villain, but I am somehow more frightened of Dumbledore, even though I know he's on my side. I find myself fearing him in a delighted way, and that's the way Harry and some of the other kids feel in the story. The other day I was ill and I re-watched Jurassic Park. This is an old movie now, and so you may well not have seen Jurassic, you may have seen one of the new ones, but the original Jurassic Park, at the very end of the movie, the three velociraptors are, have gradually been hunting down the children and the remaining heroes, and they're in the middle of three Velociraptors who are all trying to kill them. And then just as you think there is no way out here, the T-Rex arrives. The T-Rex towers over the raptors, steps in, and just picks up the, that's a good impression, don't you think? And picks up the Velociraptor, throws it into the dinosaur sign, eats and savages the other, and the children run away. Now, in that instance, you are ultimately far more frightened of the T-Rex than you are of the Velociraptors. But you're frightened of the T-Rex in a way that's delightful and awe-inspiring because you know he's on your side and the Velociraptors, as puny as they are in comparison, were against you. You are now fearing the one who is for you and the fear is more intense but also more delightful than the fear of the one who was against you. More recent example. How many people have seen, can you give me a little clapometer if you have yet seen the new Lion King? That's good. That's actually not bad. Okay, I've seen the new Lion King and if... If you've seen The Old Lion King, you'll know the story anyway. It's Kind of exactly the same. Um, but why bro- if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But what they do is the, the young lions escape to the elephant graveyard and the hyenas surround them, and then Mufasa arrives just as they think they're about to be eaten. And Mufasa just trashes the hyenas and fights them all off. And then there's this menacing line when Mufasa turns and says, Simba, you deliberately disobeyed me. Right? You remember that? You all, we all feel like guilty little children at that point in the story. But in that moment, Simba and Nala are more afraid of Mufasa than they are of the hyenas. Because Mufasa more powerful than the hyenas, he's just fought them all off. And we all know very well that he is to be feared far more than they are, but he is to be feared with awe and reverence, not with screaming, shrieking horror, because he's for them. And he is using his mighty power to defend them, not to attack them. But that doesn't mean he's not scary. It actually means he's more scary than the things that were trying to kill him. It's true if you know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? Aslan versus the witch. You're scared of the witch because you know she's trying to kill you. But when Aslan roars, the witch picks up her skirt and runs away. There is a fear of the lion that is so much greater than the fear of the enemy. And in the disciples, in this boat, the disciples experience it for themselves. The disciples... See the the horrifying fear of the storm being totally gazumped and trivialized by the awe-inspiring reverence for the king of the wind. And as they defer their fear from one to the other, they realize this is a different kind of fear. This is not the kind of fear that makes me think I'm gonna die. This is the kind of fear that says, I, want, I respect you and revere you and fear you, Lord Jesus, far more than I would ever fear a storm ever again in my whole life. But I fear you because I know that you're for me. And I know that you're not against me. and I know you're not trying to kill me, but you're going to use that awesome power that you have to save me and deliver me rather than to trash me and kill me. And in that moment, the object of their fear transitions and never comes back. That We, in their, in their stead, do exactly the same thing. And we look at the elements, we look at the things that might frighten us in this world. And we say, yeah, on face value, that might be frightening. I, might, I did think I, might, I was going to die. I did think that. Yes, you're right, those things are scary in their own terms. But wow, when the camera pans to the T-Rex, to Aslan, to Mufasa... I suddenly realize how small those fears are in light of the one who created the very things that are frightening me. And I fall on my face in reverence in front of him and say, I fear you because you are for me. And I fear you as a father who loves me and who were he going to try and kill me, I would have no hope at all. But I know that he never will. I know that he's not going to use that power to strike me down. He's going to use that power to release to free, to love me. But because he's more powerful than anything else, I will always stand in awe of him and worship him forever. Who, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen? Why don't you stand to your feet if you're able to, without talking, why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to respond to God and we're going to sing to him. But let's stay quiet. I want to pray for us as we do. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the glorious, awe inspiring, reverence provoking, scary in a good way, fear of the one who is for us and not against us this week. I pray, Lord, you would not just instruct us from the word, but that you would lead us into a spiritual encounter with the God who is in so many ways so scary and yet who, because he's on our side, is feared mingled with delight and with joy and with hope. I pray for awe to descend on us now and as this week continues, that we would experience the reverence for the king of the wind that the disciples felt on that day. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.